6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapters 3 and 4. Well, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes, we are in the third session. Remember, of course, it's written in Hebrew, but the opening verses give you the tone of the whole book, so I like to review from that. It says, the words of the preacher, which is a variation of the word that's the Hebrew word for the book. The preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. And it's widely regarded by most competent scholars that it was indeed Solomon. It was fashionable for some years to sort of question that by some, but most of those critics have been discredited. And we, uh, we take the view that it really was Solomon for lots of reasons. He says so frequently all through the books, it's vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that would seem to be the primary theme of the book, but, uh, but you need to recognize that this is man's wisdom given by one of the wisest men that's walked the earth, one of the richest men that walked the earth. But he's dealing with it from the terms of man's view of everything under the sun. In other words, it's man's best guess, which is falls short of God's Revelation. In fact, as you look at what he really he's really saying, though, it's not as pessimistic as some people tend to regard it. We'll watch that closely. But in any case, he says, What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? In other words, all that you do for yourselves on the earth in this life is empty, is a vapor. It vanishes. But he's going to go beyond that as we watch his pondering of these topics, both in the front of the book in chapter 1 also in chapter 12 where it closes. Koaleth, the preacher, or the assembler, if you will. And uh, Solomon's sermon is on natural man's quest for the chief good. And it's a cumulative treatise of many parts, and we're going to go through those parts piece by piece and get a better grasp of what he's really saying. His conclusion is all is vanity, but that has some conditions. It is not pessimistic. We're going to discover that it's actually just bravely honest rather than pessimistic, and it sees beyond life's ironies to uh, the control of God of our lives and our future. And so, book of Ecclesiastes. First couple of verses was a broad quest by personal experiments, search for wisdom and pleasure. We're now in that section in which he's going to re-examine some of those uh, conclusions, um, ills and enigmas of human society. And then he's going to talk subsequent chapters about practical morality emphasizing that material things cannot satisfy the soul. And Solomon ought to know, because he had no restrictions. He had virtually unlimited wealth, and he was king, uh, yet he came to the conclusion nothing that, that he could get his hands on would satisfy. And he'll review, but his reviews and conclusions may surprise you. Um, it's amazing to me how many commentators on the book miss the real point of the book. So, And the final significance is... Uh, from Ecclesiastes 12, let's, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is Solomon talking. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. That is not a statement of a pessimist. 
That is a statement of someone who's bravely honest, who has incredible resources, who has delved into these issues uh, with some depth. Let us remind ourselves going in what Jesus said about life. He says, I am come that ye might have life and that uh, we might have it more abundantly. And Paul echoes a similar thought. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So let's keep that in mind as we consider some of these things. You know, I'm looking at probably a dozen commentaries on this book as I try to get background. I have to tell you candidly that Warren Wearsby's commentary is head and shoulders above the rest, in my opinion, because he really seems, and I think, has a very fresh grasp of what the book's really all about. But he points out uh, quotations from two famous professors. The first one is from George Santayana, who taught at Harvard from 1889 to 1912. He wrote, he says, Why shouldn't things be largely absurd, futile, and transitory? They are so, and we are so, and they and we go very well together. That's Santayana's view from Harvard. And uh, Joseph Crutch, who's professor of English at Columbia from 37 to 52, he said, quote, There's no reason to suppose that a man's life has any more meaning than the life of the humblest insect that crawls from one annihilation to another, close quote. Now, both of these men were brilliant in their fields, but I think most of us would not agree with their perspectives. Uh, we believe that something much grander is involved in the human uh, life than, in, than simply transitory existence. We are not like insects. And I think that uh, certainly uh, Crutch knew that insects have life cycles, but men and women have life histories. One bee is pretty much like any other bee, but uh, uh, people are unique, and there are no two stories the same. You can write a book on the life of the bee, but uh, uh, you can't write a book that would just say the life of man or woman. It wouldn't be distinctive. So, so as individuals, we're unique. And uh, if we were not unique, we're not important. And if we're not important, then life has no meaning. If life had no meaning, then life isn't worth living, according to Solomon's reckoning, too. So we might as well, if that were all true, we might as well follow the Epicurean philosophy, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. But Solomon is going to present four arguments proving that life was nothing but grasping at soap bubbles and chasing after the wind, it would seem. But he was too wise a man to let his own arguments go unchallenged. And so in chapter 3, which is taken on tonight, through chapter 10, we'll just take chapter 3 and 4 tonight, but from 3 to 10, he's re-examining each of his own arguments. His first argument that we explored in that first session, chapter 1, dealt with the monotony of life. And as he examined it in chapter 3 and 4, um, he'll discover that there are four factors which must be considered before you can say that life is monotonous, meaningless. In fact, he's going to discover quite the contrary. Life is very highly varied and enigmatic. That's really a different conclusion altogether. See, he's going to see four things. First, he's going to see something above man. A God who is in control of time and who balanced life's experiences. That's Solomon's observation. Then he saw something within man that linked him to God. Eternity in his heart. He's going to discover that. And uh, then thirdly, he's going to see something ahead of man. The certainty of death. And he talks again about that. In fact, he talks about that quite a bit in, throughout the book. He finally he saw things uh, around man, namely problems and burdens of life. And so 
he, he's going to ask his listeners, that you and I, to look up, look within, look ahead, and look around. And take into consideration time, eternity, death, and suffering. And these are four factors that God uses to keep our lives from being monotonous or meaningless. Well, let's just jump in then. Let's take a look at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to, the first section is going to talk about looking up, how God orders time. And uh, you don't have to be a philosopher or a scientist to uh, experience that uh, we have times and seasons that are a regular part of life. In fact, were it not for the dependability of God's cycles and laws, that um, life would be chaotic, if not impossible. Now, not only are there times and seasons in this world, but there's also an overruling providence in our lives. And that's one thing that we're going to see here. From before our birth until the moment of our death, God is accomplishing His divine purposes. And even though we may not understand what they are uh, or what He's doing. I have to tell you candidly, uh, Nan and I have really come to um, enjoy the seasons. Now that's surprising because we're both uh, three or four generation deep uh, Southern Californians. And in Southern California, there's they have four seasons too. Fires, mudslides, uh, smog, and so on. And I'm being facetious, of course, but um, no, seriously, living there, you don't have the feeling of the seasons you do in, in, in other parts of the country. And it's, uh, it's interesting. We have, we had, uh, we have lived in Denver in our early married years. We also lived in, in the East, in Michigan. We have really grown to love the poetry of the seasons, which is in, in a sense is a new experience for us. There's just something healthy, uh, emotionally as well as physically about the cycle, feel it, being able to feel the year go by. We really, we really, uh, enjoy that and, uh, for what it's worth, you know. Well, now, Solomon's going to give us 14 statements that affirms that God is working in our lives and seeking to accomplish His will. And, and uh, all these events that we experience come from God, and they come in their time. And uh, if we cooperate with God's timing, life will not be meaningless. And uh, in, ver- in fact, verse 11 says, everything in its time is beautiful. So let's just jump in. Verse 1. In fact, this may ring familiar. There's a very, I, I was hoping to get, get, prepare a recording so you could hear it. You all may remember it. These, this first part of this book is a popular song. You didn't realize that Solomon wrote one of your songs, did you? <laughs> to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to get and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. Now, there's a list here of 14 opposites, really, each of which happens in its time. It's interesting that Solomon used a multiple of seven, 14, which is, and it begins his list with birth and death, of course, which is highly significant. In fact, the, the number seven, in fact, even suggests completeness and uh, in, in the use of the polar opposites and so forth. This is a well-known poetical technique called um, merism, and it's intended to suggest totality as a package. 
So uh, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. You know, it seems strange to us because in our minds, the things like abortion, birth control, mercy killing, surrogate parenthood, all these things make it look as though man is really in control of birth and death. But Solomon said otherwise in a more absolute sense. And I suggest for your notes, you might look at Psalm 139. In the interest of time, I didn't uh, put that on the screen. But it basically states that God so wove us in the womb that our genetic structure is perfect for the work that he's prepared for us to do. When did God first start thinking about you? Before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. And Psalm 139 deals with that. Now we may intervene and hasten our death. But we can't prevent it. And when our time comes, God so wills it. And there's examples of that in the Scripture. And uh, Psalm 139, verse 16 says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book. That's the NIV version. It also speaks in this first uh, verse about a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. Bear in mind that the Israelites were an agricultural people. Their religious calendar was built on the agricultural year. And there's a time when you plow and plant, and there's a time also when you pluck up, which could be reaping, or it also could be pulling out the unproductive plants, if you will. And uh, a successful farmer realizes that unless you uh, understand how nature works for him, he has to work with nature is the point. He understood you need to understand God's principles and cooperate with them. And verse 3 speaks a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up. Now the killing here probably refers not to war, but to self-defense or uh, results of sickness or plague in the land. First Samuel 2 deals with some of that. God permits some to die and some to be healed. And this does not imply that we should refuse medical aid. There are some religious extremists that sometimes create tragedy by not taking advantage of the resources God has put at our disposal. God can use natural means. He can use uh, uh, technological breakthroughs that have been developed, and he can also use miracles on occasions, and he does. And we see some very conspicuous examples of that all through the Scripture, when the, the sun standing still in Joshua 10, uh, or other examples in, in Isaiah 38 and so on. Verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Boy, that's certainly true. It's part of our walk. There's time that we weep with the, those that weep and mourn with those that mourn. And uh, also there's a time to dance. You may recall the movie Footloose, which tried to celebrate that very thing with the preacher's kid and, and so forth, the desire to express themselves in a dance against a very restrictive environment. Verse 5, And a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. Israel is a rocky land, and a lot of your farming had to do with clearing your fields before you can plow and plant. Also, if you wanted to hurt an enemy, you'd fill his field with rocks. <laughs> People also gathered stones for building walls and, and houses. Stones are neither good nor bad. That depends on how you use them. And uh, there are places where it's very useful to gather stones. Whenever we're in Israel, we walk down from the Mount of Olives down to the Gethsemane. I always encourage people to take a couple of rocks, put them in your pocket, and then use it to make a little trophy for your house that people ask about, what on earth is that? And you see, that was one of the rocks, that was one of the stones that didn't cry out. And quoting from Luke 19 and the whole 70-week prophecy that's fulfilled on that day and so forth. It's a, 
You can make these things uh, memorabilia if you like. But anyway, uh, also in this verse, it talks about embracing and refraining from embracing. You know, it's interesting how people from different ethnic backgrounds have different ways of expressing themselves. And, and uh, certainly in the Middle East, as among other places, there's a, there's a tendency to be very demonstrative. There's a lot of hugging and kissing goes on, even among men, whatever. And uh, that's also true in Russia and elsewhere. It's sometimes odd. It seems very strange that they, uh, but they have this deep emotional, uh, the touchy feely kind of, of uh, embracing and so forth. This could be uh, equivalent, really, to saying hello and saying goodbye. Also, in effect, the same same expressions there. And, and then in verse six, a time to get and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. A better translation would be a time to search and a time to give it up for lost. Is a, perhaps a more precise translation. This is the biblical authority for a garage sale. There's a time to buy, there's a time to get rid of stuff, okay? Time to keep and a time to keep out. I sometimes call it the Kenny Roger theology. You know, Kenny Rogers, maybe you're the gambler. A time to hold him and a time to fold him. A time to walk, a walk away and a time to run. <laughs> Verse 7, a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. And this probably in, in part suggests the strange Jewish practice of tearing their clothes uh, for during a time of grief or repentance. You know, God does expect us to um, sorrow during bereavement, but not like the unbelievers. One of the things that we need to do perhaps more effectively is celebrate when a believer has joined our Lord. But again, there's times to take out the needle and thread and start sewing things up. Verse 8, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. Are God's people allowed to hate the fact that it mentions war and peace here suggests that Solomon really had the nation primarily in mind. But there are some things that even Christians ought to hate. And for your notes, you can, I'll give you a few verses you can jot down and check this out. Second Chronicles 19.2, Psalm 97.10, Proverbs 6.16-19, and Revelation 2, verses 6 and 15. Second Chronicles 19.2, Psalm 97.10, Proverbs 6.16-19, and Revelation 2, verses 6 and 15. Life is sort of like a doctor's prescription. Taking certain things alone, they can kill you, but properly blended, they can bring healing. So there are things that you should have righteous indignation over and so on. But in any case, God is sovereignly in control, and He's in control of everything. And there's a purpose for everything. And this is not fatalism. It doesn't rob us, if you will, of freedom or responsibility. It's simply the wise provision of a loving Father. And he promises to do all these things for our own good in Romans 8.28. You might, um, I often joke about this, but you might make sure you have a tab on Romans 8.28. Hardly a day, day goes by where you don't check to make sure it's still there. And the most important words that, of that verse are the first three. And we know that all things work together for good. For everybody know, for them that love God, to them are, who are the called according to his purpose. Precious, precious verse. Well, now we're going to shift and look from, from this 14 opposites to um, ourselves inside. You might label this uh, eternity as in your heart. Solomon continues here. He's no longer, frankly, looking at life under the sun, which is sort of the theme of the whole letter. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also he hath set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh 
from the beginning to the end. Now, in verse 9, he's really repeating the question of the, that opened the, the book, third verse of the first chapter. Is all this labor really worth it? Now, in light of so-called new evidence, or Solomon's present, he's presently re-examining these statements, he's going to give three answers to that question. Uh, his first answer is that man's life itself is a gift of God. See, in view of the travail that we experience from day to day, life may seem like a strange gift, but it's God's gift just the same. And we may be exercising ourselves trying to uh, answer uh, or explain life's enigmas, and we don't always succeed. But if we believingly accept life as a gift and thank God for it, we will exhibit a better attitude towards the burdens that may be put upon us along the way. If we grudgingly accept life as a burden, then we'll miss the gifts that come along with it, and our outlook determines our outcome. I've seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. Profound insight in the way he expresses that. The travails in your life, some minor, some serious, but they're God-given, and he has a purpose in each one of those. Why? To exercise us in it, to grow our faith, to strengthen us, and in that growth prepare us to comfort Christians that will then have similar burdens put upon them. Maybe a clue to some of the ministries that are ahead of us. And uh, in verse 11, He hath made everything beautiful in His time. Also He has set the world in their heart. Now this, the world here in the Hebrew, it's translated world in the King James, but the Hebrew word is olam. It's a word that embraces the concept of eternity, long duration, antiquity, futurity, forever, everlasting, both forward and back. It's King James says, set the world in their heart. He really has set eternity in your heart. And uh, man was created in the image of God, and he was given dominion over the creation. Therefore, man is different than the rest of creation. These parallels that some people draw between man and animals or insects and stuff are naive or incomplete because they don't understand that man is distinctive, and expressly so. And one of the distinctives is that he has eternity in his heart. And yet uh, no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. See, this explains why nobody, including Solomon, can be satisfied with his or her endeavors and achievements uh, or is able to explain the enigmas of life God accomplishes for his own purposes in his time. And it will not be till we enter eternity that we will begin to comprehend God's total plan. Some people often draw the analogy, it's like looking at tapestry from the backside. If you ever looked at a t complex tapestry from the backside, it's a hodgepodge of threads, and it isn't until you see the front you really understand the intent of the, of the artist. He continues, I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. I know there's no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. See, this is his third conclusion. Man's life can be enjoyable now. And uh, he's going to emphasize this in all these verses that are 12, 13, and 14. He hinted at this back in chapter 2. I called your attention to it at that time. To be, he was careful to say that even the enjoyment of life is a gift of God. Life is a gift, but so our ability to enjoy it is also a gift of God. And this is a very important theme throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. 
It's going to be emphasized in each of the four major sections in chapters 3 to chapter 10. Now what Solomon is encouraging here is not pagan hedonism, but rather the practice of enjoying God's gift as the fruit of one's labor, no matter how difficult life may be. Life may appear to us as being transitory or temporary, but whatever God does is forever so that when we live in Him and let Him have His way, life will be meaningful and life will be manageable. So this is really what he's... So instead of complaining what we don't have, we should simply enjoy what we do have and thank God for it. And that's why I think Warren Wearsby labels his commentary on Ecclesiastes, the table is be satisfied. Wherever you are, whatever it is, be satisfied. That's a key thread through this entire essay. I know that there's no good in them but for a man to rejoice and do good in his life. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. And up for the ability to enjoy it. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it that men should fear before him. Boy, that says it all, doesn't it? Now notice the psalm's not saying, you know, be ha- don't worry, be happy. He's promoting faith in God, not faith in faith, or pie in the sky. It's amazing how many people and how often we'll see uh, movies or literature things which seem to extol having faith, never pinning their, never identifying having faith in what? Having faith in emptiness is stupidity. The issue is not having faith, the issue is having faith in the right things and uh, having faith in God. It's amazing how many people seem to make faith itself as if it's an end. No, it's a it's uh, intended to be a transitive verb with an object, in effect. Now, how can life be meaningless and monotonous for you when God has made you part of His eternal plan? There's a basic contradiction there. See, you're not some insignificant insect crawling around uh, from one sad annihilation to another. If you've trusted Jesus Christ, you are a child of God being prepared for an eternal home. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your prayerful continued support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.